Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of the second season of Web Perspectives. My name's Sean, and in this episode, I interview Trey Hunter, creator of Python Morsels, speaker, author, and educator in the Python community. How does Python programming language compare to JavaScript? What can Python authors do in their code that JavaScript authors just can't? With new JavaScript features coming down the pipeline like knowledge coalescing, decorators, internationalization, and vendor-based automated testing tools like Puppet, how does Python's ecosystem compare to node modules and the wealth of packages available every day in the JavaScript world? What about types? And now that we have TypeScript, does that change anything? Does that make JavaScript more of a contender? With the ongoing shift towards isomorphic, backend-focused applications, is it time to finally jump ship to the Python world? And most importantly, if so, how can we get started leveraging our existing JavaScript knowledge? Find out all this and more in this one-hour episode of Web Perspectives. Hi, and welcome to Web Perspectives, the podcast where we cover the minutia of front-end web development, from HTML to CSS to JavaScript. Learn the ins and outs of the industry and supercharge your web development career. Hi, Trey. Welcome to Web Perspectives. Thanks for having me. Trey, I am so happy I could finally get you on. And actually, now that I think about it, we met way back, what, what year was it, 20... I have no idea. <laughs> it, it must have been, it was definitely before 2017. It was definitely after 2012. I know that. <laughs> yeah. I have such a story about San Diego. I went there hoping to find my career, my passion, like a lot of our listeners. I wasn't sure, is this actually what I want to do? Do I want to become a quote unquote framework developer? So I actually met with one of the core members of the framework that I was using at the time, and I still use today called Ember.js. And I went, ended up going to a few meetups, and that's where I met you. I met you at, I think it was San Diego JS, right? I don't, it might have been. It's funny, I, I assumed I met you at the San Diego Python meetup, but... Was it Python? I don't... <laughs> it, well, the thing is, when you mentioned Ember.js, <laughs> I, I was also in the Ember.js meetups back in really? 2014 or so. So it, it could have been either one that we met at. So I guess you went to the dark side then. Now you're a Python slash React developer. Yeah. What happened is I went to the training side and I decided instead of being a full stack developer, I'm going to entirely teach Python to teams. And I mean, there's always going to be a soft spot in my heart for front end web development because that, that was my introduction to programming. But that's what I do now is all Python. You've just completely switched over to Python. Now, I know a lot of our developers here don't really have an exposure to Python because it's generally not something that even we taught in our boot camp at Lighthouse where I used to teach. Maybe you can tell our listeners a bit about what Python means today and why it's still relevant as a web developer. Yeah, yeah. So Python is often said to be the second best programming language at everything, which doesn't imply that it's not the first best necessarily, but it does mean that it's kind of a Swiss army knife and that it may not always be the best tool for the job at something, but it's going to get the job done pretty well. So it's a nice tool to have in your toolbox of programming languages. And that's because it's very good at a lot of different things. And it's also pretty readable because those two go hand in hand in the sense that part of the reason it's very good at many different things is because it's readable, which means a lot of people made libraries and frameworks in Python. So that's part of the reason that it is successful is it was originally made as a language for teaching. And 
or actually it was made out of a language that was made for teaching. It was called ABC back in the early 90s, late 80s. And that's part of its syntax that makes it so readable is from that ABC background. Web development really is your main interest here. So talking about web development specifically with Python, there's Django, which is you know an MVC framework. There's Flask, which is much more of a micro framework. But there's a lot outside of web development, which is part of the reason people like to use it for web development is many people using Python, they don't learn Python for web development first. Or if they do, they find that it's also a very handy tool for other purposes as well. For example, if I'm trying to parse some data out of a log file very quickly, I often reach for Python. It's a very handy tool for getting something sloppy done very quickly. Yeah, and for a lot of us out there, we we probably heard about Python at some point. And I like that you compare it to like a Swiss Army knife, at least the way I understand it. It kind of does everything. It has so many different libraries and abilities just out of the box. And a lot of developers might say, well, I already know JavaScript. I can reach for Node.js or Dino. Why would I think about using Python when I already know how to write JavaScript? So I really do think there's something to be said for having one programming language that you can use for everything. I mean, that's part of the reason that I've reached for Node in the past at times is it's nice to have a language that works on both the front end and the back end. And Python's never, well, I don't want to say never. Python's probably not going to be that in the sense that if it is, it's going to be compiling down to JavaScript probably because in the browser, that's what runs, right? It's all JavaScript. So the something... Uh, that aside, the it's nice to have one language that works everywhere. One of the reasons to use Python is that it's fundamentally different in the way that it acts. Everyone who's done JavaScript for a while knows that JavaScript is an event-driven language. There are benefits to that. There are downsides to that. It can make things kind of confusing for just a simple Hello World program, for example. Whereas in Python, one of the downsides to it not being an event-driven language is it's a little bit tricky to do async and await stuff. You can, but it wasn't. it's a little bit of a bolt-on syntax. But it's very easy to do things that don't necessarily need event-driven components, that don't need to do things in a very asynchronous manner. And usually on the back end with web development, your limiting factor typically isn't your CPU. It's often your database. It's your network connection. It's something that isn't the process that you're running your code in usually, unless you've written some very, very slow code or you're doing something really, really intensive. Yeah, and I think for a lot of us, we've grown accustomed to the single-threadedness of JavaScript. As a developer, we might reach for tools like Rust or Go when we want concurrency on the back end. So it sounds like Python allows us to kind of crunch numbers. When I think of Python, I think of platforms like TensorFlow and artificial intelligence and building artificial intelligence algorithms and models. I would oftentimes visualize those models with a tool called JuPyter. A lot of the tutorials I looked at use Python. Right. Python really has a strong presence in the artificial intelligence world. And that becomes important as a web developer because of how important artificial intelligence has become in today's platform as a service model and ecosystem of paid products online. Yeah, I would say that's definitely one of the points in Python's court, in a sense. They're one of the reasons to use it. Uh, Funny thing is, I have very little experience with data science, with artificial intelligence, with machine learning, with that whole world in the Python space. I've used Jupyter Notebooks before, but mostly just to play around with them. I haven't used most of the tools that come with, say, Anaconda, which is a whole distribution of Python just for data science. But part of the reason is my background's web development, 
And when I do data, I usually do very little data, or no, I shouldn't say very little data. Uh, I don't usually have gigabytes upon gigabytes of data, and I'm not usually asking extremely sophisticated questions. It's usually, you know, maybe a, a gigabyte log file I need to get some information out of. And worst case, if I end up doing some very slow database queries to get some information and it takes me 30 seconds to get it, well, that's fine, typically. Unless I'm doing it, of course, real time in a web browser, but that's a whole different situation because usually your data science tools aren't running in the same process as your web tools, which is it's kind of a funny thing that while you can mash together a lot of libraries in any world, it's a lot of times awkward to mash together libraries that aren't necessarily meant for web development into a web development framework, especially if they're meant for data science. Yeah, like we, we get all these different tools thrown at us today in the modern ecosystem as a web developer. And I think a lot of the hesitation, at least on my end, has been I've learned so much already. I've had to learn HTML, JavaScript, CSS. And now to add on to that, if I want to do any kind of work with artificial intelligence, now I'm learning Python. <laughs> and, I'm, and ironically, it was actually Python historically was the first language I ever learned <laughs> because they taught it to us in university. Right. But I don't know that a lot of the new starting developers, especially those of our listeners who come from a coding bootcamp background, may not have that background. And so I think a lot of the draw for platforms like Node.js and Dino is that they don't necessarily have to go and learn another language. I don't know that that question has still been answered. I'm curious to hear if there's any other reason other than the ease of use there, the availability of libraries and maybe the speed of Python and the availability of the tools. What other reasons might somebody reach for Python? I would say, honestly, the biggest by far is ease of use. And I say that setting aside performance concerns, because honestly, Node can be faster, Python can be faster. Often that's yeah. that's not the, the reason that it's reached for. And the reason I say ease of use is it's a very different ecosystem. Both the Python ecosystem and the Node ecosystem involve third-party packages. There's NPM with the Node world. There's PYPI, the Python package index in the Python world. In the Node world, though, if you want a package, you end up getting a lot of little micro packages typically. In the Python world, it's not quite that way. So it's kind of a mindset shift in the sense that there's a framework in the Python world called Flask. It's a micro framework. If you want to make a website in Flask, you end up cobbling together a lot of different technologies, gluing them together, and you've made a website. But you kind of, it's an invent-your-own framework in a sense. Whereas Django is kind of the more 800-pound grill in the room. It comes with a lot of things. It's batteries included. And you can toggle things and change things in it. The Node world doesn't tend to do things the Django way. There are some packages that are big libraries. It's just, it's a little bit against the ecosystem though. The same with it often on a, a Linux or Unix machine. There's these little tiny tools that people, you know, glue together. Very similar in the mm. Node world. So I would say it's kind of an ecosystem shift. And for that reason, I usually would recommend Python on the back end for someone who's new to web development because I find it's a lot easier to get started in. It's a lot easier to, easier to jump into. That being said, if you already know JavaScript and you're super familiar with the Node world, you might want to give it a look, but it may or may not be the thing for you. Yeah, I've seen some Python code before. There were some repositories I'd looked at before that I think they used Flask, uh -huh. not Django. But at least it sounds like Django has pretty much everything that you ever need and it's quite opinionated. One might liken it to perhaps Ruby on Rails yeah. in the sense that it gives you everything you need to just go. It has opinions about how you might deal with authentication, get requests, user management, all those things. Does that sound about right? Yeah, it does. And I would say that very similar to Ruby on Rails, well, this is somewhat aspirational that over the years they get better <laughs> and better at this. But from the beginning, there was always this idea of 
if there's a part of Django that you don't want, it should be plug and play. You should be able to pop out that piece and stick something else in instead. Now, whether the other pieces that talk to that play nicely, that's a different issue, but that has been getting better and better over the years as opposed to worse and worse. Usually tools are pretty good at assuming that one other component in your application might be more dynamic than they might otherwise expect. So yeah, Django and I believe Rails are both pretty similar in that regard. Yeah, so we end up getting pretty much everything we need right out of the box. And we don't have to learn all these different parts and pieces and put together Redux or, <laughs> you know, what kind of store manager do I want? What kind of view library do I want? Do I want a view library? Do I want to just use jQuery? I mean, those are probably questions that our front end developers can relate to. From a back end perspective, maybe it becomes a little bit more complicated because we have different ways of dealing with asynchronous behaviors and making requests and all of those things that sounds like Django just gives us, whereas Flask, we're kind of piecing these different libraries together. Yeah, and there's definitely recommendations in the Flask world or you know, even in various parts of the Node world. There's always going to be someone saying, this tool plays nicely with this tool, you should use them together. But it's a little bit like say getting Legos, just getting straight Legos versus getting Legos where it's one of those sets that's kind of not pre-built, but it tells you how to make it, but not one of the modern ones. It's like so much that you can't even interact with the others. It's, you know, it's meant to be pluggable. It's like getting one of those sets that's meant to work in one fashion, but you can always pop out components and stick others in if you wanted to. So it's meant to be customized, but yes, absolutely. It's meant to give you everything out of the box for free. So for those of us who may not have that experience, starting with Python, and I think this is what you do, right, Trey? I think you work as a, you teach Python, right? Yeah, that's right. And actually, that, that's just what I do is I do uh, Python training on site for teams. So I used to do web consulting. And then at some point I realized uh, I love teaching. I didn't think I could get paid to do teaching. And then a company asked me if I wanted to do a Python class for them. And I realized that's something I could actually just do, Python training for teams. And so that's the main thing that I do. I would say my side gig is actually the online teaching, though I want that to be my main gig one day. And honestly, it's becoming more and more my main gig because I've had a lot of time during the pandemic to work on that, especially as you know, many of my clients are kind of waiting for the pandemic to end to go back to in-person teaching. It's, you know, when is the end in sight? And so online teaching is now also a thing that I'm doing. All around Python, though. Well, I'm sure you get this question often as uh, somebody who hasn't had any exposure to Python before as a web developer. If I'm interested in a, a framework like Django, where would I start? Would I start by pulling in the packages with pip? Would I use Python 2? Do I use Python 3? What do you suggest as a starting workflow for these new beginners? Yeah, yeah, great question. So uh, first to answer your question, Python 2, 3, use 3. Ah. Uh, and I say that for two reasons. Ah. Python 2 was officially end of life on January 1st, 2020. And so it's been a while now, actually, that you that doesn't mean your code stops working. It just means it's not supported. There's no security releases. It's harder and harder to find uh, tools that support it. And Django dropped support for Python 2 very aggressively in the sense that they, had, rather, I should say they adopted Python 3 very aggressively. They were one of the first tools in the Python ecosystem to say, we're a pretty big tool but we want Python 3 to be supported by third-party packages out of the box. So Python 3 at this point is very well supported by Django. Python 2, you'll have to be in a very old version of Django to use it. So answer that question, Python 3. Getting started, I it's funny, I don't have one thing to recommend, but the, the thing I would recommend most is a tutorial 
that works for you. So there's the official Django tutorial. There is a book called Hello Web App that was written by Tracy Osborne. It, it might be a little dated at this point. There's uh, the Django Girls tutorial, which is an organization for getting more women into tech, and they run workshops all around the world. The curriculum is all free, and it's all meant to be self-paced online. So DjangoGirls.org, that's a great one for someone who's very new to programming. However, if you already have a programming background, you can kind of just breeze through some of it a little faster, and it's a little bit more complete than the official, well, I should say it's a little bit more complete and a little bit less distracting than the official Django tutorial. The official Django tutorial goes really in the weeds and some things that you just don't need to know your first week of using Django. So go take a look at the official Django tutorial, but maybe don't work through that one first. So I wouldn't start with a pip install until the tutorial tells you to. And the reason is the very first web app you make, if you can devote, say, three hours, four hours to making a website that's not going to be your ultimate site, you'll get some learning out of the way, some painful learning, some things that you did wrong on the site that is a throwaway site in those mm, first four hours. Yeah. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of documentation out there and whatever suits the level of the developer, they can follow that tutorial. And so with a framework like Django, does it give a command line or a CLI interface that say Rails would give? Can we just generate a model and all of a sudden we have the file there sitting in our models folder? Does it work in a very similar way to a lot of the tools that some of our developers might already understand? Yeah, it does. It does. And actually, now that you're asking this, I realize there's some other things I should have mentioned before. There's a Will Vincent has a Django book, and I don't know how many other people I know who have their own Django books. It's kind of, it's a popular thing, right, when you're kind of a teacher in a space to make the intro to Django thing. But to answer your question, yes, it's similar to, to Rails. I can't remember how it works with Rails, but with Django, it all goes through a command called manage.py, and that is generated by Django. It's just a little Python file. It's maybe 20 lines long. And it basically just bootstraps Django. It says, here's one environment variable, which tells us where your settings file is. That's the biggest part of magic in Django is that settings file. Mm. And then everything else is mostly, well, I say mostly Python. There's some other magic, but that's the most magical part that kind of bootstraps it all. And so through that manage.py file, you give it a command, say run server to spin up the server or make migrations to make some database migrations. There's a whole bunch of things you can do with it. But yeah, it all goes through the command line. And for somebody who hasn't even exposed themselves to Python before, would you say it's a safe jump to just jump right away into Django? Or would it make more sense to start with something more of a beginner tutorial? I've seen your blog posts and a lot of them do focus on more Python related things. Uh, when you start to get into Django, would you say that that's quite a jump into framework land as opposed to learn Python? Like a lot of times I'll tell developers that I used to teach, learn JavaScript, learn HTML, then you can right. start to learn all the fancy frameworks and what it means to write a React component because everybody knows that React component does not at all look like the web component spec. It's very different. So they're two different things. It's like apples and bananas. They have different affordances. <laughs> One you can peel right. open, the other you can't. Or back when everyone used jQuery, you know, learn JavaScript before jQuery. So, you know, what's a jQueryism and what's actually just plain JavaScript? So, yeah, I'm torn on this because if you're trying to make your own site and you just want to get started because it's kind of fun to dive in, mm. you might want to go through a tutorial like the Django Girls tutorial and do it without Python knowledge because it doesn't assume you know any programming, which means it says, you know, do this. We're going to explain what's going on here. But the Python parts of it 
mostly aren't very distracting because there's very little of Python there. There's, you know, assignments yeah. and things you'd see in other languages. But if, if you've done another programming language, you could probably dive in, but you want to make sure you circle back. Mm. And that's something whenever I do, and you're absolutely right, I mostly teach Python, but I do definitely teach Django because, I mean, my own website's in Django. Yeah. I have a Django yeah. background. Yeah. I love Django. But when I teach Django, I pretty much always require that the team I'm working with also go through some sort of Python with me because you kind of have to have certain bits of Python under your belt and really understood well to make sure you're using Django well. Right. So start with some maybe basic tutorials just to hit the ground running. And then as you go through the Django tutorials, you kind of pick up some Python bits here and there like, oh, I put a colon after my if statement. I don't use the brackets or the parentheses. And then it's a space sensitive language. So now if I use tabs in the middle of my spaces, Python is going to get angry at me. <laughs> yeah, be consistent there. Yeah. yeah, well, and hopefully you'd pick those up from a, a, some kind of intro to Python. Make sure you circle back at some point, but inevitably what's going to happen is you're either going to spend way too much time worrying about Python and learning things that you just don't really need to know quite yet, or you're going to spend too little time, which I think is not a bad way to error, as long as as you're learning, you write down what it is you need to dig deeper into. Because learning isn't I always tell my students this, that when you're in a class, whether it's in person or remotely, you can't just learn and have the information poured into your head and then you know it and you're done. Even if all the right things are in the course that you're taking, everything you might need to know is in there, which is never true. But even if it was, you're not going to actually retain it. And typically, the bits that you don't retain, there's other bits on top of those that you purposely didn't get to because they were really more distracting than they were worth. Like for example, an intro to Python course rarely goes into decorators because you don't need to know them, they're distracting. But in Django, you might see a decorator in Python and it might be kind of confusing. At that point, you might wanna circle back and finally learn that feature if you feel it's relevant at that moment. So you, it's a constant process. You really gotta be circling back and treating it as a never ending learning process. Yeah, and and I don't I have no idea what a decorator is. If it's anything like JavaScript, then I might, but I don't know that I do. So for our listeners who don't know what a decorator is, definitely check out Trey. You've got a uh, blog of all these Python hacks and quick snippets of code and explanations of what the language does. Maybe tell us a bit about your website and what resource that offers uh, as a beginner. Yeah, yeah. So I, I started blogging many years ago, but I, I started really heavily blogging about Python probably around the time I started training in 2015 or so. And those blog posts live on treyhunter.com, my main site. But Python Morsels I started in 2018 for folks who basically who weren't ever going to do corporate training with me. They weren't ever going to have their boss convince someone to bring me in. And as a team, they were all going to learn Python together, but they wanted to learn something new about Python. And I wanted to give them an opportunity to do that. So in order to do that, I basically said, I don't want to do an intro to Python course because I'd like to aim my teaching at folks who already know a programming language. For example, if you already know JavaScript, some things in Python become very easy. The way variables work, for example, in the two languages are very, very similar. And so I took the exercises from my trainings, which are really the best part, because lecturing, you don't learn by putting information into your head. You learn by trying to retrieve information from your head. That active retrieval is where learning happens. So exercises are one of the greatest ways to learn because you're, you're having to write code in order to accomplish a task, which is kind of quizzing yourself. So I took those exercises and made them into a website called Python Morsels. I then added screencasts, which 
I've been wanting to do for a long time. It's just mm-hmm. getting a recording set up and all that. I'm sure you know from podcasting. You've got a much more elaborate setup than I do as well. <laughs> Anyways, Python Morsels is currently the home for something new that involves Python learning. If I'm playing with Python, I want to teach something new. I tend to stick it on Python Morsels eventually, and I try to do it bite size. So the screencast, for example, only one of them is over five minutes long. So I try to keep them about three minutes long each. The exercises as well, I try to keep bite size, but there's always multiple stages and there's always kind of a new twist with each stage. So it's, I try to keep it fun as well, because if you're a self-disciplined learner, you know, you're learning on your own, you have to have something that's motivating you that's intrinsic as well as that extrinsic motivation, whatever it is you're trying to build. Yeah, I find that so humbling of yourself that you went through to explain all the different resources that we could use without mentioning your own website, Python Morsels, and what it offers new beginners. Because I've seen some great write-ups there, succinctly detailed, and your screencasts seem very well documented. So I want to say you've done an amazing job, and I would highly suggest any listeners who are interested in Python, check out Python Morsels as well as your website, treyhunter.com. We'll also put that in the show notes. Now, Trey, you're also an educator, so I was hoping we could riff off each other a bit because I've also come from that background. I'm more interested in how you ended up transitioning away from the role as a web developer to get so involved as you are in it right now, teaching Python. Like, What drew you into the Python ecosystem that the web development ecosystem didn't offer you? Right. A couple things here. So first, I want to mention while I think about it, because you asked me, you know, how I got into training. There's a book that I recommend that's very adjacent to this topic here, but it's called Success and Luck by Robert H. Frank. And that's one of the books that I read that made me appreciate basically the luck I've had in my life that, you know, future success, I should rely on myself to try to do good in the future to try to you know be successful. But when looking backward, there's this paradox that really it's best if you look toward the past is largely luck-based. Not that my success, I mean, my success, I put in a lot of effort. I'm not saying I didn't put an effort, Mm -hmm. but there's that little bit of luck that was the thing that made much of the difference there. So getting into training, largely luck-based, I can try to explain that. Getting into web development, a family friend when I was a kid showed me how to make a website in, it's like a predecessor to GeoCities. I don't remember what it was called, but then I found GeoCities and a lot of time, many years spent in the front end before I found out there's a back end, there's servers that run code and you can actually have an authentication system. And then got a computer science degree. So one of the lucky folks who found out I liked programming before I went to university and pursued that and then found Python in university I didn't stick with me then, actually. We only spent about a week on it, I think, in some a programming languages course. Yeah, what happened was a friend said, I'm starting a startup. Can you help me? It's going to be in Python. And I said, sure, Python looks easy enough. And it was, I mean, I wrote some very messy code, but they wrote even messier code. So it was a good learning opportunity. And I learned Django after that from another client that I worked with. Basically, I started doing consulting work by happenstance. So again, luck, because... I fell into one job and said, well, I could try to get a full-time job, but this is kind of fun having a client where we're talking more to business level when we're trying to solve problems. And so did web consulting. I always kind of stuck with Django on the back end for the most part. I worked on some Rails projects, some Node, but only when I was doing often Ember on the front end. And I really did like having control over both ends. And then when I got into training, It was largely because I knew that I knew Python better than JavaScript. I also knew that it's a different world. Yeah, Python, it's on the uptick now in a way that 
I don't know if JavaScript ever will be because people either think, I already know JavaScript, it's easy to learn, it's in the web browser, why would I need to learn it? You know, it's a toy language. Or they think, this is a serious language, I'm going to dive extremely deep into it and use Node for my backend. And there's not really much in between. Whereas there's a lot of folks who want to casually learn Python and they assume it's a serious programming language that needs learning. And sadly, a lot of people don't think that about JavaScript. So, and I, I don't think that's true. I think JavaScript JavaScript requires learning the yeah. same way Python does. But I got into Python training, again, through luck. There was basically just a company that reached out to me, asked if I could do it. And I told them honestly, I've never done this. I've run workshops that were free. I've never done a whole course for a team and a company, but I've done consulting. Let's figure out what your needs are and try to do it. And then I just kept going from there. I had to find more clients. But it's funny because I don't have a teaching background. I don't have a background in pedagogy. So I've read books on it. I've tried to get better. But I have found that most of the people doing what I do either don't have a teaching background or they don't have a business background. And they're failing in one of those two ways. So I'm, I'm hoping to not fail in either way. But of course, it's probably more the teaching way that I'm failing, which is the reason I read books on teaching at least every year. Yeah. Isn't that interesting how I can really relate to that as a non-teacher? I didn't study it. And I remember when I had my first lecture, I definitely had a case of imposter syndrome where I couldn't quite piece together why it didn't feel right to me. Yeah. And then I eventually I realized that I had been told growing up that you need a teaching degree to become a teacher. And some part of me still believe that. It took me a while to get over that imposter syndrome to become more at ease with my role as a teacher. And when that happened, when you ease yourself, you become a better teacher. You're not thinking about how you're coming off. You're just trying to impart your knowledge. It's that passion that gets through. So I commend you for the growth. And I maybe wonder if that somehow also contributes to the quality of our instruction, because we have that desire to grow. Whereas maybe some people who get, I'm not saying all teachers are like this, but I wonder if the people who do end up getting those teaching degrees, they think, oh, it's over. I've learned everything I need to know to become a teacher. They go to the Board of Education. It's different in Canada, by the way. Yeah. The teachers get paid far more here than they do in the US. But in any case, I think there's a level of entitlement that you get when you do get a teaching degree. And you think, well, I've got a degree now. I can become a teacher in the same way as if you graduate with a computer science degree. A lot of people, I think, think that, oh, I'll just get a job. But when they graduate and reality hits them, they haven't found a job yet and they still live in their parents' house or the, and then they have that imposter syndrome again. So anyway, I want to say that it's great that we both have that background, but I think there's something that pushes us to learn and continually grow. Maybe that's because we didn't have that exposure to learning how to teach that we become more motivated to teach ourselves in a way how to teach. Yeah, I do think there's, there's something humbling about imposter syndrome, as you said. Yeah. I think one of my superpowers is curiosity because I like to play with things. And when I'm playing with things, I'm learning things, but I'm also curious about my students and I'm curious about something I try out. You know, if I say something and no one seems to understand what I just said, that's not, I mean, it's it's my fault in a sense, but I don't get angry at myself or my students because that's me playing. Life is kind of a constant series of us playing over and over with ideas. Mm. And I I think everyone is a teacher in tech and everyone is a teacher because you always have to explain something to someone else. And that's a great opportunity Mm -hmm. to play the same way you play with code. Now, not everyone plays with code because I don't fault anyone who clocks in at nine, leaves at five, writes code in their job. They don't play with it outside the job because it's a job. People should be able to have a job that is only a job. But if you play either on the job or outside of the job, 
that's a mentality that I think it really makes sense to bring to almost everything, but certainly teaching as well as coding, and it can help, but also bringing the mentality of this is collaborative. I think that's one of the reasons that I was drawn to teaching. I love explaining things to other people and figuring out whether they get it. Not that I love that I'm the explainer. I love the aha moment that even if I'm just pointing someone to someone else's resource, they watch and they go, that was amazing. Why have I not heard of that before? That aha moment is just, it's a fun thing to vicariously kind of witness. Yeah, when you finally get them to realize what you've just shown them and they realize that they can use that in more than one place. They can toggle sidebars anytime they want now right? using the hidden attribute. They could do something like that. Or they could use transforms with CSS, or they could, I don't know, I'm trying to use some analogies to front-end developers here. Right. I'm not sure what the equivalent would be on the back end. I would be curious to hear what sorts of concepts you end up teaching to beginner and likewise intermediate developers in Python. What kinds of topics do you find yourselves most teaching in general in your Python courses and your consulting? Yeah, so... It depends on the background. And the reason I say that is if you're coming from a JavaScript background yeah, and I show you in Python when you assign to a variable, you know, variables or not, I'm holding up a coffee mug here. No one can see that. I always use a prop that I put a rubber duck in the mug. This mug here, this is not a variable. A variable is not a bucket that contains a thing. Right. A variable is a pointer. It points to an object. Now, that word pointer is scary because it's from the C world, but it's how variables work. They're a reference of sorts. Right. That's the same in JavaScript and Python. So that's not surprising. If you're coming from Java, that can be very surprising that every single variable works that way. Or even if you're coming from C. Now, a C programmer, I can shortcut and say every variable is a pointer, but then they have more questions of, wait, well, how do I dereference them and reference them? A JavaScript programmer doesn't care at all about that because you already know how the variables work. They work pretty much the same as JavaScript. So it really depends on the background, where the ahas and the gotchas are, which is part of the fun, but it means you kind of have to cater to the audience, but also the individual. Because if someone has a very, very heavy SQL background, they're thinking in a very different way, almost a more Excel-like way. In general with Python, Python tries to be not a gotcha-free language so much as a language that doesn't have as many gotchas as other languages. Now, that means that there's gotchas, but they're just hiding in different places, right? And in fact, I like to tweet out gotchas. I call them Python oddities. So a hashtag Python oddity, I tweet out, I think I've done over 100 of them at this point over the years, but it's fun to just find something in Python that is confusing the first time you see it, or it might be confusing the first time you see it. And often these are not bugs. They're not things that are unexpected. They're expected behavior, but they might seem unexpected depending on your background, depending on where you're coming from. Maybe you could give some of our listeners an idea of what a gotcha might look like. I'm just signing into my Twitter for the first time in years. <laughs> to see what Python oddity <laughs> tweets are there? Yeah, so uh, let me think of one. So one gotcha is one of the biggest ones. It's hard to explain, but there's something called a tuple in Python that is an immutable data structure. A list is a mutable data structure. It's basically like an array in JavaScript. If you stick a list inside of a tuple, you can change that list and it changes the list, and it seems to change the tuple because the tuple doesn't actually contain the list. It contains a reference, a pointer to the list, the same way that in JavaScript, data structures do not contain objects, they just point to objects. So that's a little weird. But on top of that, there's a way that you can try to change that list using the plus equals operator okay. that will give you an error because you can't change the tuple, but it will also change the list. 
it gives you an error and it changes the list. Whoa. <laughs> That's one of the biggest gotchas in Python. And it's an implementation detail of how the plus equals operator works. And it's one of those where I always tell my students if I show that to them that this is a gotcha that will never get you because what is being done here is an extremely weird thing to do. Mm -hmm. Basically, if you're doing it, nothing good can come of it. It just so happens that a very weird thing comes of it. So usually the gotchas in Python are hiding in places that you really shouldn't be diving into anyway. It's like you hit a brick wall and it's behind that brick wall. That's the oddity. Right. <laughs> you can't see it anyway, but it's there. It's just, oh, this cool thing, but it'll never actually affect you because you've hit a wall. Right. Or it's up in the attic. It turns out the attic has something that is poisonous to eat. Well, why are you putting food in your attic? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so many different oddities. Whereas I think a lot of us as web developers, we encounter problems. We don't know why, but it still works. Right. JavaScript doesn't stop us. It doesn't even throw an error. And the web was built like that. The web was built for to not be error prone, to be error resilient. Yep. So that when we write malformed HTML, we just create a new text fragment instead of creating a new element. But it, the strange thing is that if you actually go and you look at the way that the nodes are built, there's actually a new node for the text, but it's not a new element. So right. it's like, well, there's not a new node, but there's a new element. And it's like, oh, well, uh, that's kind of weird. That's an oddity, but it doesn't really affect you. And I think that might be the closest example that I can think of that we might have, well, at least immediately right now. I think there's a lot of other examples, but or like how casting works in JavaScript. Yep. It's really messed up and how the uh, or does not what we think it does when right. we put a zero at the end of it, because zero is a falsy value in JavaScript. And that's why we need to use the question mark, question mark, if we're doing yep. a, like a ternary kind of thing. But I think that there's all these situations that we end up encountering in the JavaScript world, or even in the HTML world, when we don't form our HTML right now, we're wondering, why does the page look so weird? Why does that element not appear in the sidebar anymore? And then you realize that you missed a bracket. And now whatever browser you're using decided that, oh, you must have meant to put this element in the main content. And it's trying to correct for, for your mistake, right? Yeah. And so it's it's funny, that's back to your, not original question, but one of your earlier questions about why I learned Python as JavaScript. Something that's very different about them is, oh, so Gary Bernhardt has a talk, I think it's just called WAT, mm -hmm. that I'm sure a lot, of, a lot of folks have seen. There's WATs in the Ruby world, WATs in the JavaScript world. Mm -hmm. And of course, WATs in the Python world are kind of Python oddities in a sense. But the WATs in Python are very different in flavor from the WATs in JavaScript because as you implied there, JavaScript was designed, as much of the web browser was designed, to be extremely resilient in the way of being forgiving. Mm -hmm. So when you do something wrong, it doesn't yell at you and say you did something wrong. It tries to correct for you. Python, on the other hand, is often in the opposite direction. When you do something wrong, and it's not exactly to Python's liking, it will complain at you. It'll try to guide you in the right direction, but it will be very upset. So for example, in Python, if you take a string and use the plus operator and concatenate it with a number, you get an error. You cannot concatenate a string to a number. It's one of the few programming languages where that's not possible. In JavaScript, it would cast the number into a string. Yeah. In Java, it would. In Ruby, it would. In almost all languages. Right. In Python, you can't do that because strings and numbers don't know how to concatenate together. It's either the plus operator for adding or it's the plus operator for concatenating. If you have two types that are different, you've got to explicitly cast one to the other. You've got to explicitly convert types. So implicit type coercion isn't really a thing so much in Python. You've got to be really explicit, which is one of its downsides because it can make it verbose, but it's one of its upsides because it can make it pretty readable. Well, types are a very big topic right now. And that brings me to ask the most obvious question a lot of our listeners are probably wondering right now. Well, what about TypeScript? 
why not just use TypeScript then if I'm really worried about all the type coercion stuff? TypeScript will throw an error. It's just a layer that sits on top of JavaScript. It's this new language, and then I actually get to space specifically what kind of variable I have. Now, if I recall correctly, Python does actually have types. Like, you actually have to say string, but it also has implicit types. Am I correct about that? Like, it'll actually sort infer of. the types in certain situations. Yeah, so it's TypeScript is interesting because I've never written TypeScript myself. I've seen it. <laughs> Yeah. But it was kind of becoming a thing when I was about to leave the JavaScript world, and I just never got the opportunity to jump in. Mm-hmm. But So TypeScript, my understanding is variables can have types, which means that variable has to be this type. Now, mm-hmm. that's a thing that doesn't exist in JavaScript, but it also doesn't exist in Python. At least it's not baked in, in the sense that in Python, objects have types. Each object has a type. Variables do not have types. Variables have other things. They have scope and stuff that objects don't have. But right. you can you can give a variable a type, sort of. It's using something called type hints or type annotations. But the thing is, it's a bit of a gotcha because it's not actually enforced by Python. You can say x is a string and it equals 4, and it's fine with that. It does not convert it to a string. It just says x is 4. I don't care that it's an integer. Now, the, the way to enforce it is to run a, it's a linter of sorts against your code called MyPy okay. that checks your code explicitly to make sure that the types are all correct. But you've got to opt into it. It's like a pre-compilation step in a sense, right? It's kind of like, ah. um, yeah. Is it like ESLint yeah. that we have in the JavaScript world? Yeah, it's, it, it's not yeah. equivalent to ESLint in the sense that okay. our equivalent to ESLint is either PyLint or Flakeate or one of the other linters in the Python world. But it's equivalent in the sense that it's during that step there where you're linting where you would be running MyPy. And honestly, MyPy is actually usually slower than many linters because it does a lot of sophisticated things to try to figure out, is this type incorrect anywhere? Really? You'd think that a type is either correct or it's not based on the information in the source code, right? Right, you would. In Python, we practice something called duck typing. Duck typing is the idea that if it looks like a duck and it quacks (laughs) like a duck, it's a duck. We don't check the DNA of an animal to check, is it a duck? We observe it and we see its behavior. If it quacks, we might say, you know what, it's enough of a duck to me, even if it's maybe a goose that's quacking. Or we might be more strict. We Mm -hmm. might say it has to quack and fly and some other things. But in Python, we tend to make assumptions about the object. If those assumptions hold, we don't typically care. Is it actually a list? Could be a list or a tuple or a generator or a file or some other iterable, something you can loop over. What we care about in that moment is, can we loop over it and get the things we're expecting? So because of duck typing, which is a beautiful thing, it complicates type annotations, because often type annotations, you want to be not very, very strict, but more loose and generic. You want to say, this is an iterable of strings that I'd like here, not specifically a list of strings. And so if you're playing nicely in the Python world, trying to embrace duck typing, type annotations get a little weird, which is part of the problem with computing them. Yeah, I can see two different situations. And I can definitely relate as a former TypeScript developer slash Angular 2 developer. Now there's Angular 4. Hello for all those Angular developers out there. I can think of situations where we do know exactly the type of data that we get back. We do know that our quote unquote tuples or dictionaries end up having strings in them as values and not integers. But I remember when I first learned Python, I remember using dictionaries and I remember I could store any type of value and same with sets in JavaScript. I think the closest analogy to dictionaries in JavaScript world would be a set. And I don't know if I'm right about that. That, that might have changed. Yeah, I, I think you mean the um, in the key, 
in the, yeah. the key component of a so in a JavaScript object, yeah. I guess you could call it the attribute name. Yeah. That it has to be a string. So JavaScript uses something called an associative array for its hash map like object. Mm-hmm. In Python, our hash map like object is a little bit more generic than associative array. We call it a dictionary, which is just I don't know other languages that use that word, but it's our flavor of that. But it can be anything that's hashable, which tends to be something immutable, which you're absolutely right means numbers or strings or even booleans or or two you can even use tuples a tuples of of numbers as a key in a dictionary which is weird yeah but sets exist in python and they exist in javascript i i think you're right that sets in javascript you can put anything hashable in there sets in python as well yeah the funny thing is we very rarely use sets in python because often when you want this uniqueness you often care about the mapping as well so you often care about the value that's associated with the key which means you want a full-blown dictionary Yeah, and I think that speaks to the idea of having unified data. So if your data is consistent, then ideally having something like TypeScript might make sense, or at least in theory, because it will check, okay, no, your data coming in is not a tuple. I'm trying to speak to your language here. It's supposed to be a tuple. Well, if it's not a string, and then the back end passes a number in, what's going on, right? And a lot of the front-end data storing mechanisms, like I'm thinking about Redux right now, there's a whole bunch out there. Ember Data is another one. They all check, are the types correct? That's why when we create our models, we say, okay, ds.adder string or adder date. So when we get the response back from the backend, we can check, this makes sense. And if we get an array back of strings instead, well, if we're expecting an array of strings, then great. But if we're not, then time to throw an error, right? Anyway, I think that speaks to the point of having something like TypeScript, because we can do that, at least in theory, through the compilation process in a way it kind of checks in the runtime or it bakes that in if it's a string, if it's not a string, and you can obviously write those types in as you go. Whereas in Python, we can't quite do that unless we use MyPy. And so the question that I'm sure listeners are asking at this point is, well, if that's the case, why would I reach for a tool like Python when there's that kind of overhead? It sounds like there's quite a bit of an overhead for using MyPy. If I'm looking to validate the response from an API and I want to check those types and I want consistent data, why wouldn't I reach for a tool like TypeScript instead? Yeah, so a couple thoughts here. There's overhead in the compilation step. So it's kind of like for folks who write automated tests for your code, I'm hoping you write automated tests for your code, but you know, for folks who write automated tests, uh, yeah, yeah. that's overhead, right? If it takes five minutes to run your test or 20 minutes to run your test or something, that's a long time, mm-hmm. but it's worth the wait if it makes sure your site actually works better. So MyPy folks who use it basically see it as part of your automated testing in a sense. It's validating your code actually works as expected. However, there's also a difference here in the reason you described using TypeScript. You could argue that you might not even need that in Python in the sense that if you end up with the wrong type of data and you tried to use it in a way that it can't be used, if you tried to, for example, concatenate a number to a string, it's not going to automatically convert it, which means it will fail loudly. Now, it's going to fail loudly in a way that doesn't explicitly tell you what happened, but it's going to fail. It's going to result in not a hidden error, but a loud failure. And so you'll often notice those bugs you might not have noticed in JavaScript, which means you might not need something like TypeScript. On the other hand, if you're using TypeScript because you want to validate that the API that you're using, it's not necessarily even trusted, you know, what's coming back, and you really want to validate it every time you use it. Yeah, right. You can add libraries that say, okay, as I'm loading this JSON data and I'm converting types and such, 
do the validation for me. So often we solve this problem in Python at the library level as opposed to at the language level. And part of the reason we do that is Python is much richer than JavaScript is in terms of magic. There are things that you can do under the hood that allow a framework author to basically hook into the language and say, every time you assign any attribute on this object, or even just particular attributes, do a thing. Validate something, do some behavior. And in fact, even at the most fundamental level, you can say, I have an object points to by the variable x, an object that is pointed to by the variable y, x plus y. I want to customize what happens with that. Really? Yeah, if I controlled what the object X is and what the object Y are, that class, we have something called operator overloading. That's the biggest thing that I miss when I go into JavaScript because it allows you to write code that is just so elegant sometimes because you can reach for the plus operator when it makes sense. You can reach for getting the length of something when it makes sense. In JavaScript, if you invent your own data structure, you've got to invent a syntax that's based on method calls because that's what you have in JavaScript is method calls. If you invent your own data structure in Python, you can actually overload many of the built-in symbols, many of the built-in operators to make that data structure feel native. That's one of the bigger things that's missing in JavaScript that I tend to really miss when I move from Python is you can't make code that feels like native JavaScript so easily. That sounds huge. And I'm having one of those elements right now, the ones you described earlier. The closest I think we have in JavaScript are probably decorators because they kind of do magic yeah. in a way and they hook directly into the language at least in in theory, based yeah. on the spec by the TC39 committee. Now, I, I have two things. One question, MyPy, so Python is interpreted. And for listeners who don't know that Python is also interpreted very much like JavaScript, although that gets complicated with V8 and the way that JavaScript gets compiled in browsers now. So with that aside, though, I'm not sure I fully understand the way that MyPy works. You said it's like at the compile level, but Python is interpreted. So maybe dive into that a bit and tell our listeners how actually that does fit in with the language. Does that also use the overloading API that you described? Right. So I said pre-compilation step, but I didn't actually literally mean compile because oh, okay, right. it's actually something you have to run on your own. But to answer your question, I have no idea how it works. <laughs> and the, part of the reason is it's there's a lot of magic in it because yeah. You know, as you said, because Python is not a compiled language and that unlike a language like, say, Haskell or one of those exotic languages where all the types are inferred and they're very, very elegantly inferred and correctly and mm -hmm. you can always infer it at compilation or at not compilation time, but at, um, well, honestly, every, every interpreted language is compiled at some level. So at, at the initial read time, which you could call compilation time, right. uh, Python isn't like that and neither is JavaScript. So when you look at a variable, it has to jump through a lot of hoops to figure out what's going on. That's the reason MyPy can take a minute to run on your code. Right, at first, at the first time it looks at the code. So very much like how when a browser has to parse JavaScript. Right. It creates a tree, and at least for the HTML. It also does that to build the JavaScript heap. So in the same way, it would have that kind of overhead at the beginning when it first parses the script. Right? Yeah, yeah. And it, it may be... Every time it does it, it, it depends on the way that you've got MyPy set up, but I think there are some ways you can cache things. Regardless though, that's usually a step you don't care about so much because it's typically run at the same time as your automated test as a verification step, and it's usually overwhelmed by the slowness of your automated test because usually for a web application, especially if you've got like Selenium tests or something on the back end, yeah, it's right. usually more than a minute to run those tests anyway. 
Well, speaking of automated testing, I know that most of the QA engineers that I've worked with on my team do use Python to script Selenium. And I actually remember I was once tasked with using a Python framework called Robot Framework, I believe, and that uses uh-huh. Python as well. Have you found that writing automated tests in Python works more efficiently and it feels more streamlined compared to, say, using Java or even JavaScript or Puppet to automate the testing part? I would say so. Part of the reason is that Python itself, kind of like JavaScript, there's little overhead and that you can often accomplish something very quickly without writing a bunch of code. But Mm -hmm. kind of beyond JavaScript, you know, the things we just talked about that you can reach into Python syntax and overload things, the libraries that do automated testing in Python sometimes actually use those features. So honestly, though, very rarely in the sense that Selenium, usually when you use Selenium, regardless of what language you're using it in, it looks very, very similar because the method calls are all meant to be very, very similar. Right. Yeah. But in general testing in Python, I think the fact that Python is a quick language and a very rich language in terms of what you can do with it is probably one of the reasons people reach for it with testing. But I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing it might also be kind of a common denominator in the sense that when you're testing in JavaScript, one of the biggest downsides to testing in JavaScript is one of the biggest wins in the language is that is also inherent to the language is one of the things that throws the biggest wrench into the works, which is the event-driven nature. If you spin something up, you now have to say, okay, well, here's either my promise or my callback, or here's some way to, for me to communicate with this thing that is running asynchronously. If you have to do that in tests, you gotta be very, very careful. Whereas if you're doing black box testing where you're spinning up a web browser, you do a thing. If you can just wait, you can say, click a button. Okay, now we'll wait a moment. And then when this thing's on the page, we'll click it or make sure that this is here at some point. That's the kind of thing that it's very easy to do in Python without all that waiting kind of built in. So it's a different paradigm that I think makes things easier from the beginning. Now, not necessarily more correct, but easier for someone who's very new to automated testing to dive in, I would say. Yeah, when we write automated tests, uh, we use Ember at our work, uh, and we use just await. We everything is asynchronous, at least for writing our tests. Right. So we go await, uh, clicking a button, await for this item to appear. We can do that. We can say wait for the loading spinner to appear. That's just wait for, and then we could call different helper methods, and we just call those, and they're most all asynchronous. So for us, once we get used to it, we don't necessarily notice. But I know that historically speaking even when we used to teach we had different test runners there was jest and like a whole bunch of different tools what's the ecosystem like in terms of writing automated tests for python great question so built into python in this python unlike javascript has this gigantic standard library so unit test is one of the things built in it is one of the few packages that is built in that uses camel case instead of underscore case. So it's kind of a bit of a wart on the language (laughs) because in JavaScript, I always use camel case personally. In Python, we pretty much always use underscore case for our variables, unless it's a class, then it's always camel case. I do remember this, yeah. Yeah, so unit test uses camel case, which feels really awkward. So that's the biggest downside to unit test. In addition to the fact that the built-in assert statement, so Python actually has an assert statement built in, Mm -hmm. it cannot tell you information about what the assertion error was. So if you say assert x equals equals 4, it will say false is not true. It won't say x was not equal to 4, it was 3 instead. And the reason is, by the time assert actually gets that data, 
x equals equals 4 has been evaluated. It gets either false or it gets true. So it doesn't have enough information to dive in. It would need to somehow introspect itself. And Python's assert statement doesn't have a mechanism for that. So there's a third-party package called PyTest that does that. It basically adds magic to the language that people used to shy away from because it would occasionally fail. I haven't ever had it fail, and I've been using it for many years. So the magic that it adds to the language, I would say is well worth it. And it makes it so you can just say assert something equals equals something else, which is a lot easier to read, in my opinion, than the expect one thing, comma, another, and you've got the parentheses, because that's one of the downsides of testing in the JavaScript world is it's kind of got to be verbose because you're doing function calls. You're stuck in function call land because there's not a syntax to hook into unless you added a syntax on top of the language, which I'm sure probably someone has done. I don't know if you know TypeScript or JSX, anyone else has done mm -hmm. that, but PyTest is basically taking the fact that Python can hook in and introspect itself and doing that, which is something that's magical and it's discouraged, but it works great for testing. It really makes for some really elegant looking code. Yeah, and I was wondering earlier what might be some places where you would use that so-called overloading of operators. Yeah. I'm trying to think of other examples because I can think of ways that we would achieve that without such a thing in the JavaScript world. For example, if we wanted to change the way that an object behaves when it's assigned to a value, we can have a setter and the setter will react to when the value is changed. So we can do that already with native JavaScript with ES6 and ES2021, I guess, if you want to be very specific. So we've got, yep. we've got ways of doing these things. What outside of assignments and tests might this functionality give us? Us that we don't get in the JavaScript world. Right. So the setter and the getter, that's one of the things that I was really happy was added to JavaScript. And in fact, I was jealous that I couldn't use it yet because I think at the time the browser didn't support it and you couldn't easily transpile it with Babel or something. I don't know. But I, I remember setter and getter really wanted to be able to use it. And especially Ember at the time didn't support setter and getter because it was new. And so I agree. Setter and getter are probably the most commonly sort of like, wow, this is an awesome thing in both JavaScript and Python. And in Python, we call them properties. Okay. But you can, for example, in Python, make an object called a descriptor, which is kind of a magical thing that allows you to say, I want to add this to an object. And when this attribute is assigned to, the setter logic is delegated to me, the descriptor. It's delegated setting and getting and reusable delegated setting and getting, which is a thing that you could sort of roll yourself in JavaScript, but you kind of have to jump through a couple hoops to do so. Now, that's something that you could probably accomplish in JavaScript. Something you couldn't really is, for example, if you had an object that you wanted to act like an array, like an array in JavaScript, except you wanted it to maintain the items in that array in sorted order. So, for example, you wouldn't insert something into the array. You would call some kind of add method to add them. It would add it in the correct place. Okay. In Python, you could make your own object that acts very similar to a list, but it doesn't have an append method, and it doesn't have a pop method. Append is what we call push in the Python world. It would instead have an add method, and yet it can be indexed with square brackets, just like you can index something in JavaScript. And it could be assigned to maybe even with, well, actually, I guess that wouldn't make sense with the keeping of sword, but it has the idea of a length. And it so has these features that are built-in syntax that you can actually customize. The fact that you can customize what happens when the square brackets are used on an array-like object, that's something that allows you to invent a data structure. And you can't really do that in JavaScript. It's a thing that because you can do it in Python, it opens up doors to being able to say, well, I have something that acts just like a list. 
You can even loop over this thing and you can index it. And I want to pass it off to something else. Yeah, I think the closest we'd have are observables in the uh, RxJS world. Right. Yeah. And, it, and, and that was supposed to be a thing in JavaScript that never happened thanks to the TC39 argument. So we've got, we don't have observables anymore. The closest we might have is the mutation observer, which we apply to elements. Last thing I should note is you're honestly probably not going to reach for these mostly yourself in Python, which is good. Yeah. But the amazing thing is the fact that these exist in the language is what empowers library authors and framework authors to make things that feel like they're baked in. So for example, in the standard library, there's an object called datetime, represents a datetime. You can take a datetime and subtract it from another datetime, and you get back a time delta. You can take a time delta and multiply it and then add it to a datetime. Basically, you can do arithmetic with these things in a sensible fashion, and you can invent your own things that do arithmetic. So when you're using a library like Django, for example, it will often add some of these bits of functionality to its own objects, basically pretending like it is another object that you already know how to work with, which basically, going back to learning, makes it so you don't have to learn a new thing. Because the more that X acts like Y, if I understand X, I can understand Y better if the two are very similar. And so there's this common thread of functionality in Python that if you can make an object act like another object that's similar and it'll help the person using it, you should do so, which makes it really easy to learn the next step. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. My main concern when I hear something like this is what does that mean for somebody who is beginning and they don't necessarily know these affordances that are just baked in, the magic that happens, because when they go into their Python console and they try something to replicate the problem and they don't get the same result, do you think that could potentially lead beginners down a rabbit hole that they didn't mean to go into because magic happens? Yeah, it can. And I would say that the way that the magic is implemented in Python is such that library authors are usually the one who should be implementing it. They should implement it sparingly. So, you know, when it makes sense to do so and carefully in the sense that they want to make sure that they don't accidentally introduce behavior that really makes their object not act at all like it is expected to act if it were trying to be that other object. Yeah. Now, that being said, it's so baked into the language that a beginner is at some point very quickly going to come into this idea that one object can act like another without being that other. And the reason I say that is a range object, which is a object that exists in Python for representing numbers. So you can say, you know, range from one to a million, that's every number from one to a million, but it doesn't store them because if you stored every number from one to a million, it would take up a little bit of memory. So a range object gives them to you lazily as you ask for them. It acts like a tuple, but it isn't a tuple. But the fact that it acts like a tuple mostly makes it easier to work with. But you're absolutely right that that's just introduced a gotcha. Because if you think you're working with a tuple, and in fact you're working with a range, well now you've got a slight difference in what you're working with. So there's a pro and a con to everything. So I can't agree or disagree with you here. It's something that's going to both add gotchas occasionally while making things simpler. As I'm hearing you say all these things, I'm thinking, wouldn't it be great if we had a website where we had the JavaScript equivalent of say getters, setters, and then whatever the equivalent in Python. And then just a list of all the lines of code and an example. I remember TopTal had something pretty similar to this a few years back where they compared C and JavaScript. Do you know if there's any resources out there for us beginner newbies at Python where we could kind of see, okay, well, what's the equivalent of a setter? What's the equivalent of using a set? Is it 
using a dictionary, using a hash, what would be the equivalent? Because I think a lot of us, when we navigate these landscapes, we find ourselves inundated with so many different resources. How can we find that kind of a resource to feel comfortable when we want to achieve something similar that we already know how to do in JavaScript? Is there any kind of resource you'd suggest? Right. Well, it's tricky because, so I gave a lightning talk in 2015 that was, at the time, the first thing that I had found that was kind of Python for JavaScript. No, it was JavaScript for Python folks at the time, but I'd also given a talk at my local JavaScript meetup that was the opposite. Mm -hmm. And since then, there's been at least two talks at either DjangoCons or PyCons on JavaScript for Python folks, which you could really flip the talk oftentimes. Um, I think there's a book that a friend of mine, John, has been writing either JavaScript for Python or Python for JavaScript, or maybe he's writing both. I don't remember. Yeah. So there's a lot of partial resources. I don't think there's one definitive list. And one of the reasons I think that is, is it's not just about syntax, right? There's some things that are really about mentality. For example, you kind of have to understand duck typing and the fact that that doesn't have an analog in JavaScript and what the consequences of that are. Duck typing sort of exists in JavaScript, but it's really, really strongly exists in Python. Also, the notion of practicing look before you leap or it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. When do you do that? When don't you? When do you do exception handling? When don't you do exception handling? And it differs between the two languages. Right. So there's certain things that you could try to summarize in a few lines of code and and very successfully do so. There's some things that are kind of bigger concepts that you'd need to kind of either find your own or have a little bit more explanation. So I'm waiting for John's book to see if, if it ends up explaining these things. Do we have a name of this book in particular for our listeners? Uh, I don't remember, but I, I will look at it in the show notes. That sounds awesome. Well, I can't believe it all how much I've learned about Python today. And, and I want to thank you so much for coming on, Trey. Before we let you go, I would like to make a shout out to your website. I believe it's treyhunter.com. And you also have a Python learning resource we mentioned earlier. Yep, pythonmorsels.com. And that's the first five exercises there are free. And honestly, most of the screencasts there are free at the moment. But feel free to try it out. Let me know what you think if you do. So what does the future of Python look like for you moving forward? Yeah. Is it, is it going to be a dead language? Have we hit the peak? Have we hit the plateau? Are JavaScript developers abandoning ship now and moving to Python? What does the future look like to you? Well, I think none of those probably, <laughs> considering it just hit, I think it's number one in the TOB index, or maybe it's somewhere in the top numbers. I honestly don't look at these things, but I know it's not decreasing in popularity. And yet it can't displace JavaScript entirely because JavaScript is always going to be the language of the web browser. And in fact, the language of the web in general. The web is usually thought of from the perspective of JavaScript, but by default, at least. I will say that Python, it's unknown where it will be, for example, on mobile. So for example, Android runs Java. Well, iPhone doesn't just run Objective-C now, but neither of these run Python natively. So if you're making a mobile application, that's a big question in the Python world because Python has been used for GUI applications, graphical user interfaces on the desktop. Obviously, it's used for the backend on many web applications. It's used in the data science world. Mobile is one of those spaces where the Python world doesn't have an answer to that question yet, and it's been concerning to us for a very long time. So I can definitely tell you that Python's not going anywhere in the data science world. It's got a very strong foothold there. It's probably always going to be at least around somewhere in the web development world because it's such a nice language to use. And with web development, honestly, what's going on on your backend, it shouldn't matter that much because you know the layer in between that API should be the thing that is the most important. And where it is in terms of 
the future on the desktop, it's probably going to stick around. Where it is on mobile, I really don't know. That'll be the most interesting thing for me to see over the next, I don't know, five years or so. Well, we've certainly learned a lot today about Python and how it can help us as web developers. I will definitely have a look and see what tutorials I can learn in, in Python morsels and see if there's anything that I can take in and lessons I can learn. A lot of us as developers, we I think we feel a lot of anxiety when it comes to the typing system. And, and that's why we have systems like TypeScript that supposedly help us solve those problems. Can't tell you how many times though I see TypeScript code without any types. So <laughs> does it really help? Interfaces are great, but what does it really give us if we don't write them? So Python kind of gives us that shield, that protective layer. Like I like the analogy of running into a brick wall. Maybe think of it like Harry Potter. You you go through the brick wall and you'll get through with JavaScript. You'll get to Hogwarts maybe because Hogwarts is a very popular school. But if you want to live in reality, if you don't want to go to wizard school, become a wizard and learn all these hacks, well, you can go to Python and just hit that brick wall and the magic... <laughs> is behind the wall, if you see what I did there. Yep. So you know, the magic happens behind us. We don't know it happens and it allows us to do our day-to-day -day lives and not have to think about it, get our work done and do the data science and do the Django APIs and, and get it all done. I will certainly have a stab at that. Trey, thank you so much for coming on. And next time, hopefully I'll have you on and we'll talk about San Diego and uh, what that means and what that scene is like, because I'm actually really curious since I last spoke to you if the things have changed and what the community looks like down there. So thank you so much for coming on, Trey, and uh, we will see you on the next time on Web Perspectives. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Sean.